Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with the New Books Network, and I'm here today with Professor Josh Coton, who is going to talk to us about his new book, uh, Utopias of One. So thank you for joining us, Josh. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. Uh, First off, uh, could you give us a bit of background on yourself, things like where you went to school, uh, if you had any influential mentors, and then how how you came to be interested in the topic of this particular book in in light of that? Sure. Um, So I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, and I went to college at McGill in Montreal. And I moved to the United States to do my graduate work at the University of Chicago. I started in 2003 and finished eight years later in 2011. Um, my, my mentors were um, in the, from the English department, um, Lauren Berlant, um, Robert von Hallberg, Oren Eisenberg, and then um, from Russian, um, Robert Byrd, um, who sadly passed away quite recently, um, but was a major and important um, influence on me. Um, the book developed, I think, out of a, a very wide range of, of questions. And sometimes I was interested in a particular writer. Sometimes I was interested in a particular theoretical or political question. And over the years of writing the dissertation, those came together. And then um, after the dissertation was done, I did a lot of work to kind of develop a through line through the project. And I also added the chapter in W.E.B. Du Bois to kind of shore up the structure of the book, which moves from an American context to a Soviet context to kind of a transnational or even non-national or a-national context. The book has three main parts. Um, The first part is about Thoreau and Du Bois. Um, The second part is about Osip and Dedezhda Mendelsham and Anna Akhmatova. And the third part is about um, Wallace Stevens, J.H. Prin and Ezra Pound. So uh, could you start off, uh, Josh, by telling us uh, exactly what you mean by this phrase, the utopia of one? What, what is it? What makes it different from other kinds of utopia? Yeah, so I, I got really interested in utopian projects, so projects of developing a perfect world or creating a perfect world that result in some kind of perfect world that is only inhabitable by the person who made it. So a a generalized utopian project ends up or culminates in a world that has a certain kind of perfection or is perfect, but is inhabitable only by the person who created it. That's what I mean by utopias of one. Um, The kind of flip side of that concept of utopias of one is the idea of utopias that are not replicatable that cannot be imitated. So I identified when I was working on this book, you know, the standard long tradition of utopian writing is the development or the outlining of models that are transferable. So I will create a fictional text 
that will outline the model of an ideal society. And that model is meant to influence or structure a society in the world, or at least critique it. And I was interested in utopian projects whose success depends on their inability to be replicated. Um, so the, the the utopia that was front and center in my mind and was really the kind of the the model for these unmodelable utopias was Thoreau's Walden, right? So Walden is a perfect world, even if it's a temporary one, that um, if a reader w- went about replicating it or trying to um, recreate it, would be violating one of the central premises on which Walden was built, which is this idea of um, non-imitation, right? Thoreau is interested in a certain kind of authenticity that doesn't make him a dependent on a previously extant model of how to live. He's interested in discovering for himself um, what the contours of life should be like. So anyone, a reader who takes Walden as an example, you know, violates that kind of central premise and destroys the utopia that Thoreau has illuminated. And I was, I was really interested in that paradox. Hmm. How, how does that um, uh, compare then to, you know, most people when they hear the, the phrase utopia, you know, they're going to think about these big kind of communal uh, projects. Um, so is this, you know, two sides of, of, is this two different coins or two sides of the same one, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I came to see it as two sides of the same coin. So all the projects or all the texts or all the kind of literary activities that I outline in the book, I understand is taking place kind of in the aftermath of or in the breakdown of larger utopian environments. So Thoreau writes, you know, 75 years after the Declaration of Independence and during the buildup to the American Civil War. And is really kind of writing about the failure of this, what he sees as the failure of this American experiment. And Du Bois is writing the aftermath of Reconstruction, this moment of, of utopian potential that is not realized. Um, and of course, the Mendelshams and Akhmatova are writing within and against kind of an explicit utopian project. So part of the book is, you know, thinking about these utopias of one as being these kind of anti-utopia utopian utopias or anti-utopian utopias. Um, I kind of experiment with different 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 ways of of phrasing it, but that that's really central about how these are utopian projects kind of born out of the experience, the kind of lived experience of the failure of utopia. So what, uh, moving on to the meat of the, of the book then, so what makes the Rose Walden, this, uh, this utopia of one, and what makes it non-replicable? I think the dependency issue is central for me, that this is an experiment for Thoreau in autonomy, in um, what does it mean to live a life that's not dependent, not on other people, but on precedent, right? What does it mean to be non-conventional? And I think this is a mistake people make by confusing those two things. Like to be non-conventional doesn't mean to be solely independent and to do everything oneself. Um, So it's this experiment in, you know, being what um, Emerson would call, you know, a practice of aversion, right? Constantly fleeing um, the example that's expected of you and retesting 
what life is and what life should be. So that's a central premise for Thoreau or one of the kind of central ideas for Thoreau. Um, it's inability to replicate it is born out of any attempt to kind of copy Thoreau um, is buying into this idea of precedent of having someone else determine what life is or should be for you. Um, and it's also a problem for Thoreau to actually have dependence, right? So Thoreau is very careful, I think, in his prose to both entice a reader to have an audience, but also to be careful that his example will not be followed or cannot be followed by another because part of his experiment autonomy is not you know, becoming responsible for the actions of others or minimizing um, his responsibility for the actions of others. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. There, is there some particular example from Walden that springs immediately to mind that kind of brings that out? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I was thinking before, I, before this interview um, that it's been, you know, it, it's, it's a new book in, in academic standards, but it's been three years yeah. um, since, <laughs> since or almost three years since it, since it was published. And I kind of debated back and forth whether I wanted to reread the book or not for the interview. And um, I didn't reread it. Um, I guess the the thing that always comes to mind is not an example of an action that um, cannot be replicated by Thoreau because everything in the book, you know, I guess two, two answers then. This, this speaking out loud has kind of brought two answers to the fore. So one is that one could write a script based on the account of his life that Thoreau gives in Walden. And one could live it. And one could imagine actually discovering, say, there was a, you know, for some reason, an anachronistic reason, there was a camera recording everything Thoreau did. That if you follow Thoreau's actions to the T, you know, point by point by point, the effect of Walden for him is inevitably going to be different than the effect of Walden for us because we're secondary. Right? So to, to, to replicate Walden is to somehow destroy it or to violate it, 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 its aims. So it doesn't require any individual moment. It's the fact that every individual moment is theoretically replicatable. It's that in the very act of replication, um, there's a violation. So that's one way to answer that question, kind of as a way to avoid it. Um, another way to answer the question would be to kind of look at passages in Walden in which he creates these very difficult relationships with a reader that he ends up kind of obscuring himself or you know hiding himself from a reader in the very act of exposing himself. So the, one of my favorite passages is it's a Fourth of July, and he's walking through Walden Woods, and he hears in the distance a band um, playing a martial song, and he describes himself as being inspired um, by the song. And he remarks in in Walden and that I can't remember what the animal is, but I think it's a muskrat or a squirrel that he could no no this this is what it is. He hears his martial he martial strain, he gets all motivated, and the fact is it's not an animal; it's a person. So he says, "I could spit a Mexican with good relish." And that's the phrase. That's the quote. <laughs> and it, it's a it's the worst possible kind of joke, right? Because relish means with motivation, with zeal, but it's also a pun on, you know, the condiment. Yeah. And this is during the buildup to the Mexican-American War. Um, and this joke is 
both meant to expose him and kind of his bad thoughts and his bad humor. And at the same time, kind of repel a reader because you cannot help but be disgusted um, by how easily he's brainwashed or, or inspired by this music. But at the same time, of course, he's the, the very act of the pun reveals that he's not inspired at all, that he's very self-conscious of what's happening here, but yet he still makes the joke. And the, the kind of different levels of irony and paradox I think is, is, is used by Thoreau to kind of tri- constantly transform himself um, from example to non-example, right? We're, we're simultaneously attracted to him, like he's attracted to the music, but then we're kind of disgusted by him, like we're disgusted by the music and what it makes us feel. And th- th- that, that would be the moment, that, that kind of joke, which I think is so representative of Thoreau's abilities as a writer, that, makes, that, that I think is kind of a key to what he's doing throughout um, Walden. Is uh, this maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves here because we haven't gotten to the other subjects in your book no, yet? No, but, but what you what you said there makes me wonder: is that is that kind of self uh, self deprecating kind of ironic approach? Uh, you know, I look at me watching myself doing this. Is that something that kind of runs through? Uh, various utopias of one, or do you think that's, is that a Thoreau thing that's kind of unique to him? I would say that it runs through all of these texts. I I would say it's a strange combination of self-deprecation and self-aggrandizement that these are all writers that take the responsibilities of the world on their shoulders and yet are constantly reminded of their inability to resolve those problems. And in that process of kind of self-election and recognition of, of their failure, these utopias of one are born. Um, so Thoreau, you know, is constantly self-deprecating, but even in that pun, there's an act of self-celebration. Like, look what a great writer I am. Look how I can manipulate language to achieve all of these contradictory yet simultaneous effects. And I, I would say that that is a through line that occurs throughout the book and kind of the parallel to it or the kind of readerly effect of it is these are all figures that we, or at least say I, never know whether to kind of lionize or to reject. I'm, I'm really interested in writers that present themselves as both heroes and villains and trying to figure out a way to write about them that recognizes them as neither and as both, right? So they're all writers in the book that develop adherents or disciples. Um, They're all writers that kind of become heroes to some communities and kind of are celebrated as, or kind of rejected as villains to others. Um, And I'm interested in that, in that play, both as a form of, realism like what it actually means to 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 be um in in the world like to recognize that one is constantly thinking of oneself as the center of the world and then realizing how one is not um but also as a kind of literary strategy um and the kind of responsibility of one's writing to kind of cultivate audiences but then also to kind of keep them at bay 
So that, that said, then, uh, I think maybe this would be a good time to talk about uh, Du Bois a little bit. How, sure. does he, uh, how does he fit into this whole picture then, uh, now that we've looked at Thoreau a little? Yeah, so I was fascinated by Du Bois for a number of reasons. So one, how he provided a segue from an American context to a Soviet context late in his career. Um, I was also interested in... One of the things that you, another thing that you kind of unites a lot of the chapters of this book are these kind of quixotic or lifelong literary projects. So Thoreau wrote multiple drafts of Walden. Um, kind of he kind of lived in the text, constantly writing and rewriting it. And I was interested in the kind of experience and what it means to kind of live one's life through writing. You know, for Wallace Stevens, who's a, a later chapter, I make an argument that he more or less writes the same poem over and over and over again over his career. And so Du Bois, I was really interested in his autobiographical writings. So Du Bois lives in an incredibly long period of time and writes these kind of magnificent autobiographies, like some of my, I think, comes with greatest books, um, Dark Water, um, Dusk of Dawn especially, um, are these kind of incredibly poignant accounts of Du Bois' own life. And by talking about his own life's life, an incredible analysis of race in America and of America itself. But I'm very interested in the end of his career. So the, the final great book or significant literary project he undertakes is um, again another autobiography. And uh, he writes it when he's 90 years old and has emigrated from America and moved to Ghana. It is not published in the United States um, during his life. It's actually first published in Russian translation in Moscow. And I was very interested in him kind of living his life through the writing of this book, which a lot of which is kind of replicates earlier autobiographies. So the kind of book kind of presented a puzzle to me, like w- why did he want to write it and what did he achieve by writing it? Especially at this moment when he was, you know, in some ways the most marginalized in his career than that he had ever been. Um, you know, he didn't have the same kind of readership he had in the United States. Um, he was very interested in, in Stalinism at a moment when Stalinism itself was on, on the wane. Um, what, what, did, what, what, what kind of work did that, that book do for him? So the chapter is really focused on um, the construction and the impact of that final autobiography. So uh, what did you, how did you answer those questions then about what kind of work is that book doing for him? I answer that question by in somewhat of a maybe technical way that I made the argument or I make the argument that for most of his life, Du Bois is very much invested in pragmatism and even more so in kind of pragmatic or practical solutions to problems, to scientific experiment, um, to induction to scientific research, he's a great sociologist, um, great inductive thinker, and that the book for him is a kind of therapy to kind of purge his investment in pragmatism and align himself with uh, not just with a the knowledge of kind of historical materialism, but a, a, an investment in historical materialism. So the book is really about what it means to or how to transition from something that. I take to be true or I decide 
for this to be true. Um, so in this case, historical materialism and this idea that history um, follows patterns that are outside the agency of any individual person. What does it, what does it mean to transition from an accepting that is true to actually you know, believing it in your bones or living it or truly accepting it, making it part of one's life and how one sees the world? And I see the autobiography as, as, as doing that kind of work. Right. And, and that work for, 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 for Du Bois is a way of him kind of achieving a certain kind of utopianism, right? That it's about a process of him decentering himself, not seeing himself as being this historical agent, um, but being part of an inevitable historical process that after his death will eventually realize um, the utopia that he's been working toward um, in his final years. Is there, is there any particular, uh, you know, portion of the book, any particular, you know, anecdotes or stories that he shares about his previous life that, that kind of illustrate that mental transition he's trying to make? Well, I, what I found so compelling about the book and why it's so strange is that if it weren't for the, this is it's a similar answer and it's kind of an unsatisfying answer. Um, like my, my, my Walden answer might've been unsatisfying that, it's really, you see the strangest of the book by seeing it in sequence with his earlier autobiographies. So he actually lifts whole portions out of his earlier texts. From some perspectives, if, if, you know, if one didn't really know the context, one would describe it maybe as a cut and paste job, right? Like maybe he's been commissioned for a new autobiography, he has a deadline, and he just takes material from other sources and puts it together and repackages it as an autobiography. Um, what interested me was that there didn't seem to be that kind of clear motivation for the writing of the project. And there seemed to be much more of a kind of a personal investment in why he's doing what he's doing. And there are all these moments where he takes events, like he'll take passages about what life was like for him at Harvard as an undergraduate and replicate some of it, but then subtly rewrite other passages as if you were almost kind of tracing over his original prose and by tracing it over, kind of re-experiencing it as inevitable, right? He's kind of reliving his life, but reliving his life not as if he's writing it, but reliving his life as if it's already been written. And that process of kind of subtle revision that I can find no kind of aesthetic reasons, not that he makes the earlier autobiographies more efficient um, or clearer or adds detail. Um, there seems to be, you know, not much difference in effect or in aesthetic quality between the earlier versions and the later versions. And if anything, the earlier versions are more powerful. But just in that process of rewriting, I find that that's where the particulars come in. And there's a certain kind of privacy to it um, that I think also runs through um, the whole book. And maybe this is one of the reasons why um, I feel like I'm not adequately addressing your questions is because I think, you know, like I was describing with Thoreau, there's always something hidden in the very act of exposure. So Thoreau is writing a memoiristic type book with Walden. Um, and Du Bois is obviously writing an autobiography. So he's showing himself to the world, but it's never about the effect or the value the book has on him as a person. And part of the argument of the book is that not only is there um, in a symmetry between or an unreplicatability between the utopia that's achieved for the writer 
and the utopia that's left or represented for the reader. But there's also a way in which there's an asymmetry in how these worlds are experienced. So by withholding from a reader, the writer actually increases their ability to kind of achieve the effects they want to achieve. So my sense for, for Du Bois is that in the rewriting of this earlier of these earlier books and kind of the, the selection and combination from the earlier books, he gets to relive his life in a very different way than he lived it originally. And that reliving um, has an ideological function for him, which is to align himself much more fully with the communism that he's explicitly um, aligned himself with. That's kind of you tell me if I'm if I'm uh, you know completely off base here, but it strikes me as is uh, kind of interesting that at one level he's asserting his individual autonomy by you know doing a, a kind of version of a copy and paste job, and yet he's uh, you know he's using that same life story. To, to kind of rewrite his own life, you know, so he's, he's thereby asserting a good bit of individual autonomy. My story now means something different than it did before, but he's doing that in service of uh, uh, communism. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that, that contradiction, that paradox relates to the other paradoxes or kind of maybe one and the same or different, different way of a kind of accounting for the paradox that we've been tracing all the way through, um, the book, um, you know, the, the, that chapter on Du Bois kind of culminates in him thinking through um, this famous letter from Engels, where he talks about historical materialism, where Engels imagines, you know, what communism would be like um, if Marx had never been born. And he famously says, well, it actually doesn't matter because someone else would have shown up to take Marx's place. And that kind of paradox that there may be a great man or a great person energizing or motivating history, but it has nothing to do with who that person actually happens to be. Right. So again, this is paradox that I am the center of the world and I'm totally marginal to the world. I have, you know, all this responsibility, but I have no responsibility. And it's that transition that I think Du Bois is interested in, in, in enacting for himself. So since you uh, bring up uh, Marx and Engels, that might be a good time here to uh, transition to talking a bit about the uh, the Soviet context. So yeah. uh, what are those chapters? In, what are you after in those chapters in the book on uh, Mandelstam and Akhmatova? So the Mandelstam chapters were really motivated by a really kind of basic question about literary efficacy. So what can literature do? How can it remake the world? And one of the most famous 20th century examples of a book or a poem or a text remaking the world is Mendelssohn's Stalin epigram, which people read as causing his own death, um, as this act of martyrdom that realigns values and kind of predicts the end of, of Stalinism and, and, and communism as such. And I'm very interested in you know, did did the epigram do that work? And if it did do that work, why or how did it do it? Did it do it by being vir- by virtue of it being a poem, or did it do it by virtue of being an act of dissent in a context that had no room or would not tolerate dissent of any kind? So the fact that this was that it rhymed and was lineated was just accidental. 
and any act of um, insulting Stalin would have had um, a similar result. So that was kind of the or the orienting question for me. Um, the kind of way it fits into this utopianism, besides being this kind of response to Soviet utopianism, is this idea of autonomy, right? So how does a writer maximize their freedom, which I take to be essential to conceptions of, of, of utopia, right? this idea of, you know, what is the greatest extent one can have, what kind of freedom can one cultivate? Um, and in a kind of paradoxical way, like way we're kind of, recognizing throughout this book and throughout our conversation is that suicide is kind of the limit case of freedom, right? It's a person taking their life in their own hands, exerting total control. And of course, the paradox is that total control results in, in no life at all. Um, so that was the, the Mendelsham case. It was kind of the core of, of these two chapters. And then it was really looking at how does the mythology of Mendelsham get created and what kind of world does that create? So I look at Nadezhda Mendelsham and her memoirs and how, like Du Bois in many ways, she lives in autobiography. It's the way she decides to kind of um, prosecute her life um, is by writing and rewriting the same story over and over and over again. And I was thinking about what, what, what the effect of that was. And then looking at and Akhmatova's late poetry as a response to Mendelssohn's example and also Nadezhda Mendelssohn's example um, about what literature can do and her interest in not in changing the world, but in creating a private space for herself in a regime that doesn't really allow for privacy. For uh, uh, I'm thinking of for, for the listeners here, could you go over a bit uh what was so suicidal about Mandelstrom's writing sure yeah so there the, the different ways of answering that question but in, in, with respect to the stalin epigram he begins to read or present perform not read perform a poem openly critical of stalin in 1933 and he's quickly arrested and kind of sentenced to this kind of slow death in the gulag. And this kind of open act of dissent by a prominent poet um, was kind of known beforehand to be, you know, maybe not an act of suicide, but an act of incredibly dangerous, likely suicidal um, dissent. Is, uh, is that... Uh, you know, the, I'm thinking about the timing here of his of his criticism. Is that in response to anything in particular that was happening at the time, or had he just sort of reached a point where he'd had enough in general? I, I think both those things are true. So Nadezhda Mendelssohn describes that moment as you know the last drop that overfills the cup, and the cup kind of spills over. And there's a lot of debate by Russian 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 historians and Russian literature scholars about what the kind of cause or what the catalyst of Mendelssohn's decision to kind of openly dissent. Um, there's a, to my mind, a fairly compelling account that there was the, the, the persecution of the kulaks, the so-called kulaks, collectivization, 
kind of the beginnings of recognition of kind of the mass horrors of Stalinism, but then in particular, the kind of breaking point um, was this orchestrated visit um, to the White Sea Baltic Canal, which was a grand um, project of the, of the first five-year plan that Stalin brought all these incredibly prominent Soviet-era writers, and collectively they authored um, a documentary book about um, this canal, which used um, prison labor um, and kind of celebrated the ability of work to transform the subjectivities uh, of the populace. And for Mendelssohn, these writers being recruited for this political project um, that he abhorred was kind of the according to some, and I, I, I tend to agree, the last straw, right? This kind of um, harmonization of a community whose role is to either dissent or to do some other kind of cultural work and not be um, complicit in state power, them being kind of brought under heel by Stalin was kind of the end of his hope and maybe the, the, the spark that required such a dramatic um, protest. I seem to remember that uh, White Sea Canal project making quite an impression on Solzhenitsyn too. So I yes. guess Mandelstam would not be the only one, certainly. No, exactly, that's exactly right. And there is uh, something, you know, I think from my perspective or maybe our perspective, the recruitment of writers is kind of the least horrible or horrific aspect of the canal project. Um, but it's easy, not easy, but it, 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 one can see why that would have been what brought it close to home for Mendelssohn, that these were his friends. These were his associates that he would see all the time that he felt were you know, part of a collaborative project and that them so easily being assimilated um, to state power or so effectively assimilated to state power um, was in a personal or intimate way um, as horrific or even more horrific than the mass violence that attended that that project. I mean, you see something similar too, like in that fantastic scene in The Master and Margarita where the, uh, the devil shows up at the headquarters of the Russian Writers Union. Yes. I, you know, that, that uh, that's one of my favorite scenes in that book. It, never fails to make me howl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So so how does, can you talk a bit about uh, Akhmatova then? Yeah, so like this idea, like all the, all the texts I'm interested in, as I said, these kind of strange lifelong projects or projects over extended periods where the writers wrote and rewrote and really lived in the text that they, that, that, that they were writing. So I became very interested in um, Akhmatova's last long great poem poem without a hero and how everyone would claim that this is an impossible poem to understand not everyone but many people would claim this is an impossible poem to understand how many different versions of the poem circulated how Akhmatova never really finished writing it um it was both incredibly complicated and never ending and wanting that was kind of the enticement to kind of think about what kind of work was that poem doing for her and I was interested in a poem that, as I said before, created a private space for herself in a regime that didn't tolerate or encourage privacy, but that also was a different form of testimony. Right? So it's a poem that follows her writing of Requiem, 
which is all, all, you know the great the great 20th century act of of witness and i think she's interested in an act of witness that is solely for the future that doesn't try to intervene in the present um, and doesn't and as almost an act of nonviolence right that an act of witness that intervenes in the present is still creating heroes and villains is participating in kind of the logic that it seeks to overthrow or seeks to dissent itself from. And Poem Without a Hero, in its kind of confusion, in its, you know, trapdoors and false starts and, you know, different versions, um, was laying out a critique of Soviet society. And this, and I think partly of Mendelssohn himself in this act of martyrdom as kind of perpetuating violence as opposed to solving it. Um, while also, you know, creating this kind of private space that she could inhabit, which I came to understand as being, you know, fitting with or um, being similar to this utopia of one. Yeah. So maybe, uh, uh, maybe now we ought to talk a bit about your uh, uh, final figures in the book here, Stevens and, and uh, Pound and, and Prine, or I don't know if it's Prine or Prine. I wasn't... It's, 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 it's Prine. Okay, yeah, he was the one person in here in the book that I had never heard of prior to uh, uh, picking up your book. So how does uh, how does Wallace Stevens figure in this overall organizational idea of this utopia of one man? Yeah, so you, the first two sections are really political, right? So they're writers who are actively opposed to the national context in which they write and are looking for, you know, ability to create a sense of freedom or a sense of separation both within and against these contexts. The third section looks to a different set of concerns, either a transnational set of concerns, a more global set of concerns, a set of concerns about capitalism as such or about communism as such, or even not about politics at all. And that's where Stevens fits in that Stevens's problem or his challenge or his obsession is really a 19th century obsession, even though he's this great modernist poet. He's kind of belated in this sense. So his writing looks incredibly modern, but his concerns or his kind of philosophical commitments are, are quite 19th century. And that's really how to live in a world um, without God, right? How, how to live in a purely scientific world or a purely material world. And he takes Matthew Arnold's idea and the idea of many that somehow aesthetics or poetry can fill the void created by kind of the absence of religion or the absence of faith. And that's his idea, right? Or it's not even his idea. It's everyone's idea. But he feels like that's the work he's, he's been meant to do. And I got really interested because that seems to be a fairly tidy way of understanding Stevens, and Stevens himself will describe himself in that way. But the poems, when one reads them, and this was the first chapter I wrote, I, I, I read through all of Stevens's collected poems. And before that, I only really read the anthologized pieces. And I was really kind of shocked to see how repetitive his poetry is, how his poems are all, not all of them, but most of them are incredibly beautiful and some are extraordinarily beautiful and my favorite poems of the 20th century. But they all revolve around a similar set of concerns and a constant failure to address those concerns. And the question that, you know, presented itself to me is like, why would he continue to write poetry when every poem he writes simply reminds him that poetry cannot do the work he wants it to do, which is again, 
resolve his metaphysical need, fill this gap um, created by an absent God. And the argument I develop is that instead of the poems being repetitive, a better metaphor would be they're iterative. So as he develops his career, his approach to his metaphysical need changes. And as it becomes more successful, it becomes more private. And I, I create an argument or I, I pose an argument about one of his last great poems, which is called The Aurors of Autumn. And people believe it's you know his most difficult poem, but and other critics think it's his greatest poem. Helen Vendler, who's probably the great Stevens critic, saw it as his, has his greatest poem. But it's also, you know, the most hermetic. And I think in that poem, he kind of achieves a certain kind of solipsism that allows him to satisfy his need, but only does that work for him alone, right? It kind of brings together poetry in the world in such a way that for the process of writing the poem, um, he no longer feels the crisis that has sustained him up to that point. You know, there's a... um... A question here that I expect by now uh, listeners are probably uh, wondering about, which I, I think uh, now is a good time to ask that question, which is, uh, so if the if the purpose of these works is is to you know satisfy a, a need on the part of the author, then uh, two questions I guess present themselves. One is why publish it. Right, not why write it, but why publish it, right? And then two is, uh, should we read them? Yeah, no, those are those are great questions. And those are questions that were front and center for me writing this book um, and thinking about these writers. And I kind of came to two separate conclusions or two kind of tentative answers to them. So to the first question, you know, why publish? I think all of these writers are concerned about solipsism, concerned that the answers they've achieved for how to live in the world or how to perfect their lives are false. They're idealistic. They're imaginary. And they're worried that they are totally cutting themselves off from the societies in which they live. And there's an important connection that language serves to both, it already connects them to that world, but publishing kind of confirms it somehow. So for Thoreau, he recognizes that the material he's using to build this world is part, you know, he's in the woods, um, he's building a cabin, he's in a material world, but also he's using language to build it, right? He's writing the life that he wants to have as he's writing the life that he does have. And there's a necessity to publish it, not necessarily to serve as an example to a public, but to confirm it to himself that do the words I read register to an external world or are they just a figment of my imagination? That, that, that act of publication and that, that act of reception is somehow vital that what's been achieved is not false. Um, there's an awareness that, um, or there's an awareness of the kind of, I guess I would describe it as kind of a, a, the threat of idealism, that this is all fantasy, 
that I've created a fiction as opposed to creating a world, right? So that's that's my kind of tentative answer to the first question. And there's subtle variations for each author that that are that are, that are similar to that. That these need to be public acts in order to like ring true or be true. Um, the second question about you know why should we read them? I think there are many good answers to that question. One, almost all of these texts are incredibly powerful and virtuosic. Um, many of them are beautiful. These are the greatest writers of the 20th century or, 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 or some of them. So there's aesthetic, epistemological, um, kind of emotional um, reasons to engage the texts. Um, I also think there's kind of a kind of ethical reasons that I'm hoping that the book as a whole will address or give an account of one reason why so much literature or a certain kind of literature is difficult. And that difficulty results from this asymmetry between authors and readers, that the book is not really for readers, even though readers are the scene of reception for them. And they're difficult, not because the author is trying to trick the reader or you know, make the reader do a lot of extra work or, you know, all the different answers that are often used. There's a form of elitism that are often used to explain modernist literature, but the reader is not really the goal. And there's, I think, an ethical lesson to be learned in engaging works that don't give us something. It's almost kind of a lesson in altruism that what does it mean to live a life that we don't require reciprocity for, we don't require constant reward um, in order to engage, even though it has these ancillary rewards, which are, you know, beauty and knowledge, which are obviously no small things, but, no, no, we, no, don't, no. but we don't need to share the world of the author, right? It doesn't need to, the, we don't, the event doesn't need to be an act of generosity, that we can still respond and give ourselves to, things that don't give anything back to us or that authors that protect themselves from us. And I think that there's an ethical, you know, if there's any kind of lesson or ethical lesson to be learned from these books that can't be learned elsewhere, I, I think, I think it's that, um, that the world would probably be a better place if um, we could develop relationships that weren't tied up in us getting something from them. So uh uh wrapping up here can you talk a bit then about how pound and print fit into this whole paradigm you've sketched out yeah sure just this is maybe the first time i've given an account of the book like this and i realized both how disparate everything is and how much in some ways everything fits together but it's kind of a bewildering um array of, of of figures and contexts and now as a um professor myself and an advisor of, of students, I kind of imagine you asked me to kind of narrate my account of graduate school, you know, why anyone let me do this, follow my whim in the way that I, that I did. So I, I got really interested in, in Prin. So Prin, Prin um, is still alive. He's an active poet. Um, he lives in Cambridge, England and spent most of his career at Cambridge and, you know, I think he's probably the greatest living poet um, and writes these poems that on the surface and in their depth are very, dif- very difficult. And I had a similar question I had for a lot of these other writers, like what sustains him 
in the writing of this poetry? And how do we make his poetry fit with his ostensible politics? So Prin is a leftist, is a Marxist. How does he see the poems he writes as being part of that other political project? Maybe they're distinct, but maybe they're connected and they don't seem to be connected at all. And um, I got very interested in the work he expected readers to do and the value of that work um, engaging with his poetry and the work he himself does um, preparing himself to write the poems and uh, identifying the asymmetry there, like this, this asymmetry between readers and writers is you know, the work he does to prepare to write the poems and the work that he expects us to do, which we couldn't possibly do as we engage them for various reasons. Um, the print chapter is, is, is the one that is, so the first half of the chapter is about Ezra Pound, and I'm, I'm quite committed to um, my arguments there about Pound's fantasies about Chinese and how it fits in to how he understands literature's utopian project and his utopian project. The print is an interesting case because I still agree with my arguments there, but I, after I've, I wrote that chapter, I did a very long interview with Prin. Um, that was published in the Paris Review in 2016. So I think it was published, maybe it was published in 2018, but it was published right around the time, maybe even before the book came out, but after the chapter in the book had been written. And now there's this tension between Prin as he presents on the page and Prin as he presents as a writer in person, um, which is in some ways, part of the, the topic of the chapter, the, the disconnect between how Prin's work motivate, how Prin's poetry motivates work and how Prin as a teacher can motivate work. So I can say more about that. But I also encourage um, listeners to um, go to my website or buy a copy of the Paris Review and kind of think through the relationship between Prin criticism and how Prin presents himself in that interview. That interview, the last thing I'll say before I let you ask another question, was um, the distillation of four 14-hour days spent with Prin in his rooms at Cambridge. And the final transcript of the interview was 495 pages long. Oh, my. <laughs> and then I, a colleague and I did the interview together, a uh, uh, professor named Jeff Dolvin. And we spent the summer or the next period of time, um, whittling it down to, you know, 15,000 words from 200,000 words. Oh, my. And so the, the interview just represents kind of a, a small facet of that experience, which has a very clear relationship in my mind. And I'd be interested if, if, if other print readers experience it too, between the kind of maximal nature of, of Prince poetry and kind of the maximal nature of the generosity of that interview. Wow, that's the longest interview I have ever heard of. Yeah, no, it was, it was quite an experience. We, he gave us keys to his rooms and said, you can come anytime and rifle around anything you want. And then he would show up at about 1 p.m. And we'd play the, put, put the tape on and we'd have little breaks for meals. And at about 2 a.m., Jeff would look over at me and I'd say, I'd kind of nod my head. And then Jeff would very politely say, I think we should call it a wrap for today. 
And Prin would very politely say, okay. And he'd, he'd walk us down and he'd go back to his rooms. And the next day it would start all over again. Wow. That's uh, j- just the story of that interview is worth an interview. <laughs> yes. Yes. Huh. Uh, it, was, huh. it was a really kind of incredible experience. Um for me also to kind of think about, you know, there's this, the book has a series of really, as I said, said earlier, what I take to be really great yet complicated writers, you know, that, and to have the experience of spending time with one of them, I don't, don't know if it was informative, it was bewildering and it was valuable, um, but it kind of cemented that continuity and made me understand better what it would have been like to do an interview with Thoreau if such a thing right. um, were possible. Well, certainly, uh, uh, you know, if your analysis of Prince's poetry is correct, uh, his sense that, you know, there's this kind of barrier between himself and his readers, obviously, is not replicated in his sense of a barrier between himself and his interviewers, if there was that much to say. <laughs> yeah, I and I take that as both true and not in the sense that, as I've said before, I don't think any of these texts or any of these poems are actively withholding anything. Like there's no secret that they could tell that they refuse to tell. Right. Whatever secrets they have are secrets only because they're only available to the person that keeps them. And that the interview was very similar in that, that it was an act of total generosity, but yet one couldn't put oneself in the position of the person one is interviewing. So I think there's some human relationships where you get to know someone and you can really see the world from their point of view. You can inhabit their perspective. And even with Prin, with this kind of extreme act of generosity that he was willing to be present for as long as we were willing to be present. Once he agreed to do the interview, nothing was off limits. Um, he responded to every question that we asked, but yet there was a barrier in the sense that always there was this devo- barrier is the term. There was this it was difference in kind between how I saw the world and how he saw the world. And I, I like to think that, or not like to think, but I do think that that difference is part of the greatness and part of the difficulty and the problematic nature of the other writers that I write about. Because even if I make an argument about kind of the ethics of living a life without the requirement of reciprocity, there's also an argument to be made about the ethical questionability of um, living one's life for oneself or of um, the, the, the Mendelssohn is a great example of this because it's the, you know, what, what are the ethics of martyrdom, right? What, what are the ethics of, is that, are, is martyrdom something that should be encouraged, something that should be discouraged? Um, who is the martyr? Is that a different kind of human being? Is, the, is it on the continuum of human beings? Is it a model of behavior? Is it not? And all of those questions play out in different ways with all of these figures and even in such something as kind of prosaic as sitting for a 12 hour interview or conducting a 12 hour interview over four days um, with J.H. Prin. So could you uh, 
we've given kind of short shrift to uh, to pound here. Do you have a few minutes to talk about him before we? Yeah, I, I, I always have time to talk about about pound. So the that I I think a lot about pound, and I've written a lot about pound outside of of, of this book. In the book, the focus is really on his attraction to Chinese poetry. First, through his engagement with Ernest Fenollosa in the 1910s, and then through his incorporation of ideograms in the late cantos. Cantos that were written while he was an inmate um, at St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in, um, in Washington, D.C. So I make the argument that he's originally attracted to Fenollosa and to Chinese insofar as Fenollosa suggests that Chinese poetry is the extreme example of an accessible poetry. It's a poetry that doesn't require any prior knowledge um, to understand the significance of, to the point where you may not even know, have to know Chinese, right? It's this kind of ridiculous, but kind of very powerful argument that the Chinese sign itself, the ideogram, um, is transparent to certain readers or certain viewers based on their ability to understand um, or read in the words etymology, that there's an iconic aspect of the Chinese ideogram. And Pound's famous example of this is his friend who dies in World War I, Henri Gaudier-Breschka, who he claims could go to the British Museum and read Chinese inscriptions because he had such a good sense of form. So Pound sees Chinese as a tool to make his poetry um, universal, right? That he has lines in his early writing about a desire to kind of overcome the stupidity of his readers and create a kind of verse that no matter how recalcitrant an individual reader is, it will activate what he wants to activate in them. And I kind of trace that desire across his career that kind of culminates not in him writing translations of Chinese poetry, trying to like bring in or assimilate these techniques that he identifies with Chinese into his English language poetry, but actually writing poems in Chinese. A lot of the late cantos in rock drill are just page after page um, of, of, of ideograms that he takes to be or kind of fantasizes about um, being immediately impactful to a certain kind of reader. So it's this kind of two ends of um, this question of accessibility, right? That one is a poem that's accessible to everyone and the poem that has no concern with an empirical audience of actual people actually understanding the poem that can inhabit kind of a fantasy of total accessibility. Yeah, maybe uh, one more question for you here before we wrap it up. I, I'm a, a historian by trade, and so naturally I mm -hmm. tend to think about historical questions. And it it occurs to me to, to ask kind of the, the why now question. Like, did, did anything emerge to you in the course of writing a book that would explain, you know, why you get this kind of cluster of, of writers that all kind of have this, uh, you know, sense that they, they you know, are having trouble speaking to the rest of the world. And in this, you know, what, uh, you know, between the mid 19th century and the mid 20th century, and I guess onward in, in, uh, in, in Prince's case, is there, 
you know, there are contextual factors that spring to mind that it would explain uh, why you why you get this at this particular time. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I never actually kind of I probably should have but never actually thought about it in those terms, and I I worry that my answer my answer will be be, be vague. But I I would attribute this both a desire for perfection and the recognition or the acceptance that that desire of perfection is kind of a zero sum game that perfection for one, for the author requires somehow a form of abandonment of the reader, or at least a kind of severing of certain ties as being somehow a product of modernity that is about the breakdown of community and the rise of society, um, the rise of administration, um, the sense of um, both the beginnings of these utopian projects, like the revelation that um, we could turn, we're no longer a community and we can actually perfect society and have these impersonal relationships that can be improved. And along with that, which is a product of modernity, along with that, there being a constant sense of failure and inadequacy and impossibility. Right. So both hope and the antithesis of hope. And, you know, I think that, again, that paradox of how these two things can coexist is coextensive or homologous with the other paradoxes we've identified, both like this act of total generosity and this act of concealment, um, this act of utopianism or anti-utopianism, and then the utopian alternative, um, how these two extremes can kind of coexist. And I guess, you know, another way to answer it is that these are extreme projects in an age of extremes. Um, and that was one of the things that drew me to them that I was interested, I think at the beginning and still now and throughout the book in, as I said before, a basic question of literary, literary efficacy. What can literature make happen as literature? And the utopianism was born, my interest in utopianism was born out of an interest in utopianism, but also born out of an interest in just, if I'm going to select case studies I want to select the most extreme versions or the, the most extreme cases. And I feel like these writers are writers that are all constantly kind of testing the limits. And in some ways, you know, Mendelssohn is a case in point kind of surpassing them. So that, that I, I'm not totally satisfied with that answer to say, you know, this was the historical event that gave rise or sparked yeah. um, this period or the possibility of utopias of one, um, and I think in each case, I can I, I try to do better and kind of point to specific historical contexts and instances from, you know, the Mexican-American War and the rise of the build up to the American Civil War to, um, you know, the first five year plan and the purges um, and decolonization. Um, but then more generally or together, it's I think it's really a story um, of modernity and of utopianism. Yeah, we're, well, of course, we're not going to be able to define modernity here. Right? <laughs> I was just curious we can, we can you know, your, just your immediate reaction uh, you know, to that. It's something that certainly I, I was chewing on as I finished up uh, reading your book here recently. So, uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, being with us, Josh. This is a pretty interesting book, and I'm glad to hear you uh, riff on it a little more here. So thanks again. Thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, I really appreciate um, your interest in the project.